taking a brief pause in the series that we've been going through in 1 Corinthians to turn our attention to the Incarnation this week and next week. And let me remind you also that next week we will have a second service, an evening service, to celebrate Christmas Eve. It is our annual uh, Lessons and Carols service, uh, a wonderful time of hearing the story of the Incarnation and singing some of those Christmas carols that we only get to sing this time of the year. Uh, so I would encourage you, if you're available, to come to that. Please come. Make that part of your Christmas tradition as well with your family. Uh, come and worship with us next week. Uh, but today we're in Hebrews chapter 1, and a slight change to our bulletin, and I will take full responsibility for the change. And the bulletin says we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I think it is uh, the first or second law of preaching. Uh, that when you are preparing a text, it looks much longer on Saturday than it does on Tuesday. Uh, and so we will not be covering all six verses. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 uh, and uh, pray that the Lord will give us what we need from these verses. Uh, you can find that on page 1001 in our ESVs from the back. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 concerning the supremacy of God's Son. Before we come to the Lord's Word, let us go to His throne of grace and ask His blessing. Let's pray. O kind and gracious Heavenly Father, You who worked through Your Son and now work through the power of Your Spirit to unite Your people to Yourself, we pray that You would give us Your grace, that we would come into contact with Your very being, as we come into contact with these words that you would speak to us, you who spoke to our fathers long ago by the prophets, speak to us by your Son. Give us, O Lord, your Holy Spirit, to hear your word, to heed your word, and to believe in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of God. Long ago... Many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word may indeed add a, a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Recently I had a conversation with a close friend of mine. This friend is also a pastor, and this friend also happens to be the father of a young child. And at some point in the discussion, uh, the topic turned to how we balance the extra responsibilities in the church with a young family around the time of Christmas. It's not a burden, but, but it is simply a reality of ministry that Christmas time takes a little bit more work than normal rather than a little bit less. And that means sometimes with a young family, uh, that visitation with your extended family and visits with grandparents sometimes have to take a back seat. And that's simply the way that it goes, and we're aware of that. But my friend has to deal uh, with the added complexity of trying to 
work through these responsibilities and his schedule with family members that aren't even Christians, that don't really understand why it is he would give himself to doing these other things at such a special time uh, in the world. And uh, last year, my friend broke the news to his in-laws that they would have to miss Christmas dinner because there was going to be a second service. His mother-in-law decided that she had had enough. She told him exactly what she thought about it. She said, you know, sometimes you act like you don't even know what Christmas is about. (laughs) Well, from where my friend stood, the irony was pretty thick. But many in our culture would agree with that and would say that the mother-in-law actually got that right, you know. Christmas is a time that, above all else, we celebrate togetherness. That special time that we share in special food with special people. And the saddest thought at Christmas time is that you might not be able to be with your family, or even worse, that you might have to celebrate Christmas alone. Garrison Keillor feels the same way. Great American storyteller contends you don't even have to believe in Jesus to enjoy Christmas because Christmas at its core is just that sense of nostalgia and warmth deep in your neocortex. It's just brain chemistry. That's all it is. And so Keeler gives us his recipe for uh, a good Christmas. He says Christmas is number one, lights. Number two, food. Number three, song. Number four, Being with people you like, you need no more. There you have it. Straight from Lake Wobegon. Christmas is about celebrating together. It doesn't even matter what you're celebrating, so long as you're with someone else while you're celebrating it. For many in the world, Christmas is just about togetherness. Now, I hope you would disagree with Garrison Keillor just as much as you would disagree with my friend's mother-in-law. You know, deep down, maybe way deep down, beneath all of the blindness, beneath all of the unbelief of both of those views, they're actually pretty close to what Christmas actually is about. You can chalk it up maybe to to our shared uh, post-Christian recollection of, of what is important. You can chalk it up to the way that Satan likes to get us to connect real needs with false saviors. You could chalk it up to the way that deep down we're all searching for the same things, whether or not we can put our finger on it. But the truth is that at the very core, the Christmas message is the joy of celebrating together with someone who loves us. The Christmas message is about togetherness and fellowship and communion. Not just fellowship one with another, not just man to man, not just communion around a family dinner table. The message of Christmas and the Incarnation is about celebrating the fellowship and communion that man can have with the living God who came to rescue him and her to himself. That's the message of Christmas. At Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that God has come down to have communion with His creatures. And the saddest thought at Christmas is that many people will gather together and they will feast and they will sing and they will celebrate and they will not know the love of the Savior who came to call them to have communion and fellowship with Him. This is what Christmas is all about, folks. The celebration of the one who came to have communion with his creatures. And that's what we find in Hebrews as well. 
Now, in these opening verses, we see something uh, unique uh, about the Christian message. We see a lot of things unique about the Christian message, but one of the first things we see is that God's communion with humanity begins with his communication to humanity. That's the first thing we see in these first, uh, the verse and a half, really, that God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us in the person of his Son. Now, for many of the people in this room, the fact that God has spoken to people, to humanity, we, we call it revelation. That's the fancy Christianese word, that God has revealed himself, not only generally uh, in the wider world and all that he has made in creation, but he's revealed himself specially by speaking and telling us what he is about and what he desires. For many of the people in this room, that idea that God would reveal himself is an assumed truth. That's a good thing. We come in here week after week, and it's the background. Most of the time, we don't even think about it. It's just we come in, and we read God's Word, and we sing God's Word, and we pray God's Word, and we hear God's Word, and it's all there. It's the air that we breathe. That's a good thing. It was the same way for those who first received this letter to the Hebrews. Now, we don't know exactly who wrote this letter. We don't know exactly who first received this letter, but as you go through, it is quite clear that the writer seems to be a Jewish Christian, a Christian of Jewish descent with an Israelite background who's writing to other Jewish Christians. The idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system is woven throughout the entire thing, and he seems to be writing to other ethnic Jews who are, uh, who are being tempted to go in another direction, and he's telling them, no, 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 we've got something good here. God has spoken to us, and he stands together with them on the shoulders of the Old Testament revelation, and he points to this unique inheritance of the people of God, that God has spoken to our fathers. Don't miss the kindness in that statement. God has spoken. He's revealed himself at many times, in many ways. Even though he didn't have to, he did. You can trace the story all the way back to the beginning. The story of the Old Testament is a story of the God who speaks into creation. He speaks creation into existence, and then he continues to speak into that creation. He's involved in the story. And he shows up in many times and in many ways by speaking in and speaking and addressing his creatures. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. After Adam and Eve, the first parents, were exiled from the garden and exiled from the Lord, and now sin is running rampant. It's spreading like gangrene, even through their children, and there is murderous intention, one brother to another. And even at the beginning of that story, not just at the end, God shows up and he's involved, and it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, the Lord spoke to Cain. What did he speak? He spoke restraint. He spoke direction. He was involved. He was kind enough to step in and say, there's a warning here for you, Cain. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to teach you about what you need to know. And God speaks. Two chapters later, in Genesis chapter 6, sin now is so great that it needs to be washed away with the flood, and we find that God spoke to Noah. Genesis chapter 12, this childless father of a future multitude, the children who would inherit all the promises of God is floundering around in Haran, doing whatever he was doing, stalled out in a sense, and the Lord jumps into the story and God spoke to Abram. Folks, you could keep going. 
all the way to the end of Malachi and see this story in the Old Testament that God speaks to his people. It's his kindness to reveal himself in many ways in vision and dream and spoken word to inscribe his law on tablets of stone, to warn his people of judgment and to speak of salvation through prophets proclaiming good news. It's God's kindness to come and to speak of his love and his character, of his guidance, of his promises. Over and over and over again, God spoke to his people. And there's a kindness in that speaking. There's communion in God's communication. You've been at those family gatherings. The one where everybody's together and nobody's talking. They're not talking about anything significant, at least, because there's some friction in the family. There's some raw nerve that nobody wants to touch, and so to stay as far away from it as possible, they simply give up on real fellowship. You talk about insignificant things, whatever, the weather, sports. You certainly don't share anything about your life and what's going on with you and what really matters to you. You don't want to get too close. You don't want to communicate and have that real fellowship, and so you, you do away with it. Well, God is not content to leave his people without communication. So often, in so many ways, he's come and he's told us what deeply matters, what matters to him and what ought to matter to us in the very core of our being. What a kindness, what a grace, what a gentleness that the Lord would speak to humanity. You know, all that kindness, it was incomplete until the Lord spoke in the person of Jesus Christ. There's a familiar structure in these four verses. We read another one just like this today. You may know that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, it's really just one long sentence in the Greek, but we have to break it up into lots of little pieces. It's the same way here in Hebrews. We've got all these subordinate clauses and supporting material and modifiers and all that stuff, and it's all over the place. But at the very core, if you were to strip away all of that stuff, there's one subject and one verb, one person doing one thing. The subject shows up in, chapter, in verse 1, rather. The subject is God. He's the one who's acting all the way through verses 1 through 4. God is the subject. But the main verb doesn't show up until verse 2. That means that verse 1, that God spoke long ago to our fathers, to the prophets, that's background material. The King James, I think, does a a decent job with it, Uh, rearranges the order a little bit, and that's okay, but it helps us to see what's going on. Here's how the King James reads. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. Once you strip away all the extra stuff, what's the main subject and verb? God has spoken. He's spoken to us in his son. Revelation was important. The prophets were important. The direction and the the care and the kindness was important, yes, but it was all preliminary before Jesus. It was all pointing in the direction of him that he would be the climax and the apogee and the apex and all the other words you could find in your thesaurus to mean that he was the high point of everything. All of it was aiming at Jesus. Here's God's kindness. He has spoken to us in his son. Jesus, in John chapter 5, rebuked the Jews. 
He said that they trusted in Moses, but they didn't understand that Moses was writing about him. He told his disciples in Matthew chapter 13 that many prophets and righteous people longed to see what they see, and they didn't see it. They longed to hear what they heard, and they didn't hear it. And yet we turn to Hebrews, and he says, in these last days, in days of fulfillment and fullness, God has spoken to us, and he's spoken to us in a person, in his Son. The Son is the center point of all that God wishes to say to humanity. Somewhere, probably in your ninth grade English class, you were given the advice of Dale Carnegie. And he told us that uh, clear communication involves three things. First, tell your audience what you're going to say. And then say it, and then tell them what you've said. Well, God's revelation is a lot like that. All throughout the prophets, he's telling, God, telling humanity and telling his people, here's what I'm going to say. And then Jesus shows up and he says it. And then all the apostles afterwards are pointing back and saying, did you hear what God said? He's the center point. He's right in the middle. And that means that all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our joy in the Lord needs to find its center point and its fullness in Jesus. He's the one who's come and spoken to us in the flesh. Ephesians 3 says he came to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Here's the first thing we know that, need to know, that God has spoken to us in the person of his Son. Before we move on from here, folks, I want to ask you if you know the kindness of the Lord who has spoken to you in his Son. The writer makes this very personal. He will not leave this in the past. He says, the Lord has spoken to us. And if you were to continue to read the letter to the Hebrews, he's going to point out many other things about God's word, how it is living and active, how it divides us now. He's going to say, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. And his voice is still speaking. So friends, do you know the kindness of the Lord who's spoken to you in the Son? You young people especially. You who have been raised, breathing in the air of God's spoken word. And this assumed truth, sort of just in the background, of course God speaks. Of course you can pick up the Bible and hear what he's saying to you. But you think that there will always be time later to hear it. Always be time later to respond, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. And the writer says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to him in faith and repentance. See what he's saying to you in Jesus. I know that many of you have done that. And you remember fondly the first time that you know that God was speaking to you in the person of Jesus. It was a sermon where that first time you recognized a sin that wasn't just a category, but it was something that was close to your heart and you were exposed and convicted. It was the first time you heard words of, comfort from coming from Jesus and coming through the Holy Spirit and right into your heart is the first time you realize that when Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You knew he was speaking to you and you came and you heard and you rested. And his speech to you and Jesus was the beginning of a new life in worship. Celebrating the God who communes with his creatures. God has spoken to us in the person of his Son.
there's something else here. We've hinted at it, but the next few verses zero in on it. Now, we've seen already the Son is the personal revelation of God. And that means that the Son is also the perfect revelation of God. He's the personal revelation of God, and he is the perfect revelation of God. Now, beginning halfway through verse 2, it's still all one sentence, uh, but the writer shifts a little bit, and he starts to itemize the glory of the Son. All these statements stacked on top of one another, and in the, sh- the focus shifts from God who has spoken uh, to God who is spoken, to the Son. And, and, and what do we see in this one who is the Son? I think the point of these statements in the rest of this little section here is to answer this question, how exactly does the Son reveal the Father? What does he do? Is there anything maybe that's left over? You, you know, if the, if the prophets were intentionally incomplete, if they were meant to be an appetizer and not the main course, what if now someone else has come, this son has come, and there's still something left over? What if we need something more than Jesus? What if we need to know something more about what God is doing in the world than Jesus can tell us? That's one of the main reasons that this letter is being written, by the way. Those who received this letter, it seems, were being tempted to turn away from faith in Jesus and to turn back to Old Testament forms of worship. You know, the temple was pretty nice. They had pomp and circumstance and ceremony and things you could see and hear, and there were all of these things and priests and wonderful vestments and ceremony and all of this stuff. When you turn to Jesus and you've got this Savior you can't see, you've got a message that's being passed along by apostles who are going about in the world suffering for their faith, and it doesn't seem very impressive. And so maybe we should turn back to something else that seems a little more impressive. Maybe even we should go away and and begin worshiping angels or trying to worship God through the angels as some thought you ought to do. Or or maybe we ought to seek for new revelations of who God is. And these verses are meant to show us there is no one else to turn to. There is no one greater. There is no better prophecy. There is no better message that that the God of heaven and earth could speak into his creation than to give us the person of his Son. And that is because in the person of his son, God has actually shown up. That's how we know that he hasn't left anything out. Because he didn't just give us this prophetic message through other people, but he gave us a personal Messiah. He was here and he lived and breathed and died and was raised again. That's what the word incarnation means. It's the enfleshment of the pre-existent all-glorious, eternal Son. A little Trinitarian theology here, folks. God is one God. One God. He is infinite in being and perfection. But this one God exists in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And each one is the same in substance. Each one is equal in power and in glory. And this one God, who our confession says, is a most pure spirit without body, without passions, without parts, this God has taken to himself a body. That's how God has revealed himself in the Son. He he has shown up in the person of Jesus. The Lord came down to where we are. He took on flesh as we have. He lived in the world that we have broken. He came down to have communion and fellowship with us. 
And all these, these statements about who the Son is begin to give us a picture of the Son's glory. We're not going to parse out all of these statements, but I want you to notice a few things especially. Beginning halfway through verse 2, notice that the Son has the authority of God. The same authority. The one who is over all things. The Father and the Son together have that same authority. A few of these statements uh, connect the Son to all things. It says that He is the heir of all things. It says that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It also says that it is through the Son that God created the world. Now, each of these, in their own way, are really comprehensive terms. When it says the world, uh, the word there actually is the ages. And it's pointing to much more than just the physical earth that we can see, not just the globe, the world that we live in. It says in Colossians that Jesus has created all things in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. That's what this means, the ages, everything. Time and space and eternity and judgment. All things that exist, everything that has been made. God created them through the Son. The Son was the maker of all of it. The same thing is true for the word universe. Literally, when it says universe, the word is the everything. That's what it says, the all things. He upholds the everything by the word of his power. He doesn't uphold it like Atlas, who's straining and struggling underneath the weight of the globe. He upholds it like the director who says what he wants to happen, and it happens, and things move along from one point to another according to his plan. He upholds the everything by the word of his power. That's what he does. That's who the Son is. Folks, this is divine language. There's no mistaking what he's saying here. Listen to Isaiah chapter 45. God says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Who has made all things? The Lord has made all things. The Son has made all things. They have the same authority and the same power. And then again, in Isaiah chapter 46, he says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And what does the Son do? He upholds the everything by the word of his power. By simply speaking and it happens. And God says, there's nobody else because I declare the end from the beginning by my word of power. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And yet we turn to Hebrews and we find that the Son is the heir of all things. He created all things and he upholds all things. This is the God who has come down to us in the Incarnation, who's revealed himself perfectly in the Son, and he has the same authority as the Father. The second thing I want you to see is that the Son shares the nature of God, the very nature of God. Verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You know how it is to be driving along on a day where the rain is just stopping and everything's still pretty misty and murky gray. 
maybe you're beside a wide open field or maybe you come to the top of the hill and you look off in the distance and you can see those pockets in the clouds where it's just beginning to open and you can almost see the warmth of the sun pouring out of the heavens. You can't see the sun yet. You can see where it's shining. You can see what it's doing. You can see where it is. That's who the sun is. He's the radiating glory of the hidden God. Him whom no one can see. Even as he came and he dwelt among his people in Israel, as they moved from place to place under the Shekinah glory, that cloud and fire, the cloud was there to shield them from the glory. And yet Hebrews says he is the effulgence, is one of the old words, the radiance of the glory of God, the shining light of God's glory. John 1 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. And no one has seen the Father, but the only begotten Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus said it differently to his disciples in the upper room. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. They share the same nature. Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, the Lord who has come down to reveal the perfections of God. He's the God who has communion with his creatures. There's one more focus in our text. We've already seen uh, that God has revealed himself in the person of his Son. We've seen that God has revealed himself perfectly in his Son. And now we see that the Son came to make purification for sinners. How's that for alliteration, if you like it? person and perfection and purification. Now, in these last two verses, the author continues to itemize the glory of the Son. Between verses 2 and 4, really, most commentators count seven total affirmations, which is important in its own right, seven being the biblical number of completion and fullness and perfection. Seven perfections of who this Son is. Uh, But of all the things written in these verses, there's one that stands out. You you, you think back to your childhood and you play that game, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things doesn't belong. Here we are speaking about the God who exists, the Son of God who exists in power and might and majesty and glory, who sits down at the throne of the majesty on high, who rules over the angels and created all things, who has all things to him and upholds all things and for him and through him and to him are all things and he made purification for sins and it doesn't fit. I don't know if you've read up in your ancient religions. Gods don't come down to deal with sin. There is nothing else like this in any of the religious thought of the day. I know that you've read and you've heard that, oh, you know, in those other religions there are all of these shadows and things that somebody just cobbled together and made Christianity. And you go back and they say, oh, it's Horus and Isis, but there's a woman who's impregnated by a god and she gives birth to some elephant. No, there's nothing else like this. This is the divine one who comes down to deal with sin. This is purification language. It's cleansing language. It's the kind of dirty work you can't do without getting close enough to get yourself dirty. He makes purification for sins. It's the kind of thing that you can't do without putting your hands in the muck and scrubbing until all of the filth is gone. And Jesus, the Son of God, has come down to do the cleansing that we could not do for ourselves. He has made purification for sins. Here's how the author will say it later in chapter 9, verse 26. 
He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, there was an age when people rode on steam locomotives and wore top hats. An age where well-bred gentlemen spoke about things that were beneath their station. Things like manual labor or marrying a woman from the common class, things that indicated immediate social suicide. Far better to keep your dignity and your place and starve than to work in the factory like all of the commoners. That's beneath your station. Folks, if there was ever an episode or a job or a task that was beneath someone's station, it was the all-glorious Son of God coming down to make purification for sin. And yet this task that seems so unthinkable in connection with deity, this task that seems so out of place in connection to God, this purification is actually part of the Son's glory. It doesn't detract from the glory, but it magnifies it. The text says that that he sat down at the right hand of God's majesty. It says he's inherited a more excellent name than the angels, and those are things that happened in a point in time. It's not meant also to detract from uh, the eternality of his perfection. Jesus was always greater than the angels. He created the angels. He was always ruling and reigning on high. This isn't saying that he was some created being like all of the rest of it, but it is saying that after his sojourn among humanity, He came back as one who was victorious. One who had accomplished exactly what he set out to do. Even though it might seem low and lowly for the Son of God to come down and make purification for sins, he returns having accomplished what he set out to do in the Incarnation. What did he set out to do in the Incarnation? He set out to remove the last barrier that stood between himself and perfect communion with his people. He came down to dwell among us, to have fellowship with us, to be with us where we are, so that we can have the promise of being with him when all of our sin is done away. That's why he didn't consider purification something that was beneath him. That's why he didn't balk at the thought of a physical body. Is why he allowed himself to be born into a manger and buried in a tomb. He came to have fellowship with us. And there's glory in this purification. And there's promise in this purification. There's glory for the Son of God and there's promise for us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We've just read verse 26. We'll read it again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jump down to verse 28. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. That God has come down not only to have communion with us, but to make communion with us possible. Not just for a time, not just for a sojourn, but forever. That he should come back and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
He's come down to take us to a celebration, to a wedding feast where all of God's people are the bride who are presented in wonderful splendor because of the purification that he has wrought. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God has come down to have communion with his creatures. Now, what do we do with this, folks? A few things. Wrap it up with with just a few thoughts. The first thing is that we need to listen to the Son. If God has spoken to us, we need to hear what he's saying. That's what he said to the disciples. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when the veil was removed and they saw some part of Jesus' glory as the eternal Son of God, and the voice came out of the heaven and God spoke to them and he said, This is my Son, listen to him. What do you need to hear today? Is it a message of joy and Christmas jingles and holly berries and all those sorts of things? And and what were those for? And lights and food and people and song. Is that what you need to hear today? You need to hear the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. God's love poured out for sinners. His promise of full fellowship with him. This is what he's telling us. Listen to him. Secondly, we need to worship him. Now here we will push in to chapter 1, verse 6. This is the original intention. Chapter 1, verse 6 in Hebrews. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels who see the Son of God in his splendor and his glory cannot help but worship him. So how can we do anything less? This is what we're called to do. This is what we're made for fall before him in worship as we see what he's done as we pour our hearts before him as we adore him we sing that at Christmas time oh come let us adore him we don't sometimes think of Jesus Christ as being adorable because adorable sounds cute and cuddly like a baby but he's the one we ought to adore the one we ought to worship the one we ought to fall before and say you are my all and all things belong to you And you uphold everything in my path and everything that has come before and everything that is coming after. And they are all moving according to your plan. And you've brought me here and right now for this time. And you're promising that you're coming back. And I want to worship you. That's the second thing we need to do. And then thirdly, we need to have communion with him. He's made it possible for those who believe, for those who repent, and believe in the message of the gospel to have full and perfect communion with him. He's also made it possible for us, in just a minute, to have communion with him at his table. So let's come together. Let's see again the message of the one who came down to have communion with us, and let's rejoice in him. Please pray with me. O gracious Lord our God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ, our Savior, your only Son, the eternal pre-existent One, the all-glorious One, the One who reigns in heaven with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for a small glimpse of His glory today. Pray that you would help us to be better worshipers, that you would unite us in communion and fellowship, that your Holy Spirit would cause us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, that you would speak and we would hear that we would believe and receive the promises of fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.